Welcome to Small Screen Science, where we look at the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen. I'm Emma, and welcome to Series 4 of Small Screen Science. Series 4, it's amazing. <laughs> Can you believe it? Very excited. We've actually had a little break. Regular mm. listeners might have noticed that there's been a gap <laughs> between Series 4 and 3, but that's actually because we've been spending some of our time touring some of the UK's most exciting science festivals, doing mm. live show versions of small screen science, haven't we? Yeah, it's been really good, really exciting. We were quite, it has been quite nervous so on fun. the first one, weren't we? But uh, we're kind of into the swing of it now. By the end of the first one, I was just pleased that I hadn't fallen over on stage or weed myself <laughs> or said anything too stupid. But now I genuinely really enjoy doing them. So yeah, they are, they are really fun. Yeah. But we thought, as obviously many of you wouldn't have been able to attend those in mm-hmm. person, and we did take the time to write a show. Maybe we'd record them as podcasts for you now. So that's the theme for Series 4. Yeah. These are our live shows. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it should be really, really good fun. We're really looking forward to it, to uh, re-exploring our live shows. So it'd be good. Well, it's fun because we've been able to test some of the jokes for the live audience. <laughs> Let's see so if they we, actually work. <laughs> we know that it's not just you and me um, a little bit mad in our rooms. Yes, thinking no something's really funny yeah. and worth listening to and, and actually... <laughs> falls on deaf ears yeah so today to kick off the series Mm. we're exploring the science behind the hit channel 4 comedy Derry Girls Mm. which is a show that you and I both truly absolutely loved brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah and we were were genuinely honoured to be asked to do this as a show for Northern Ireland Science Festival in none other than actual Derry this year earlier which was which was just what an incredible opportunity to go and um, be a part of that so it was a really, really fun trip because we, we did uh, we did a double header, didn't we? Because we did Line of Duty in Belfast as well at the same time. Again, the perfect place to yeah. do Line of Duty. Yeah. And we are going to do an updated uh, version of our Line of Duty episodes because mm. we added a few new bits, didn't we, for we Belfast? We did, yeah, yeah. We took some pictures in the grimy underpass where they filmed <laughs> Steve Arnott. We, we were proper tourists. Oh, yeah, it was great fun. It was absolutely Northern Ireland brilliant. was wonderful, mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much to the to the festival for inviting us. We had great fun. Definitely. And since we um since we actually did the live show, obviously series three's come out as well. So we're gonna have some bonus content uh, linked to yes. series three. Of Dairy Girls, that is. Not, yeah, that's not it, line no, of duty. Not... <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> back, true. Back to yeah. Dairy Girls. Back to Dairy yeah. Girls, yeah. Um but before we go too far, listeners, you'll you'll really have to forgive us for these funny noises that we're making. We're English. It's just the way we talk. <laughs> Good. Yeah. No, slotted that one in. So, um, right. Anyway, Karen, um, we actually before before you start, Emma, can I just stop you there? Um, mm. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but you've got an absolutely cracking clavicle. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Neatly mm. illustrated. New listeners to Small Screen Science. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to preface this. Something that we do every episode is we try and fit in some of the show's best quotes mm-hmm. into our um hastily scrambled together scripts <laughs> uh no so so there we go that's that's one of them um yeah. i'm sure i have a fine clavicle but i i don't think i would define it as cracking <laughs> and it's certainly not karen going mad no that was a quote from the show um so if you remember that one was one hell of a compliment really from yeah. um kieran who's aunt sarah's boyfriend that's in right. dairy girls yeah so watch out for those uh, and we'll give you a list at the end of the show yeah 
So I suppose we ought to start with um, who is your favourite Derry girl or wee English fella? Oh, Sister Michael for me mm. every time. I genuinely love all of the girls, but there's yeah. just something about Siobhan McSweeney. Like, she's so dry. She's sarcastic. She's yeah. quick. She's an absolute gem <laughs> in a nun's habit. Yeah. She's coming. The small, angry penguin woman. <laughs> yeah. <I let's... laughs> she's Fantastic. my favourite. I have to say she's my favourite as well. So yeah. dry. I love her interactions with Peter the Priest. Yeah. Brilliant. So, like... The... <laughs> She rolls her eyes like nobody else on telly. And then when she's doing um, school assemblies as well, absolutely oh. amazing. Just she's just annoyed funniest. by everyone and everything. And in, <laughs> do you know what, actually, one of my favourite things, and I watched this again earlier today mm. in series three when she rocks up in her car and it's like oh. the absolute, I don't know anything about cars, but it's in my mind is basically a DeLorean. And it it's is. like a yeah. really cool yeah. car. And you're like, oh, it's the, the, back, it's the old Back to the Future car. It's <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Yeah, the backstory of her. She's <laughs> mm, actually very cool. So um, actually Belfast Telegraph did um, a poll to find out, you know, what people's or who people's favourite Derry Girl actually was. And it turns out it's Michelle. Um, second was Sister Michael, but the second Derry Girl was Erin. So I can ah. understand why Michelle would be the top Derry Girl. She's I so mean, funny. she's such a brilliant character, isn't she? She's, yeah. she's absolutely hilarious. And she's a yeah. classic teenager where you would see yourself in her. So the things that she did, or you'd have known someone or at school. Or a friend, at least. Yeah, I don't see like a lot her. of myself in Michelle. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely knew people like yeah. that at school at that age. Definitely. Sure. But also, surprise guest, Liam mm. Neeson. That was amazing. Which was the biggest, most amazing thing to have hidden <laughs> in the first episode of Series 3, surprise mm. guest star. So he is a Northern Irish actor. He's Oscar nominated and he's one of, I would say, Hollywood's most famous or recognisable faces mm, definitely. from the side of the pond. Did you know he's 70 years old now? Good grief. Do you know, he's looking good on it, I have to say. Yeah. He is, yeah. Mm. So he was born in Ballymena in County Antrim, Northern Ireland. So I think mm. that was amazing for him to be able to come back and be part of this tiny little show. Yeah. Oh, not a tiny little show at all, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. From Hollywood movies to pop into Dairy Girls, this was brilliant. But yeah. my favourite thing that I learnt while obsessively Googling why it's Liam Neeson <laughs> in Dairy Girls was that his code name on set, because obviously they were trying to keep it quiet, yeah. his code name was The Big Fella. Oh, no. Brilliant. Yes, that is a really, that's perfect, isn't it? Absolutely perfect. Yeah. yeah. Love that. We English mm. fella and big fella. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we also have to mention the soundtrack mm. as well. Yes. Wasn't it just an absolutely stonking soundtrack? Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And mm. we ended up, humble brag, both of us <laughs> ended up on um, BBC Radio Foil in February when we were promoting the live show. Yeah. And, you know, to have a chat about the festival and what we were going to be doing, but also both times we were introduced to the soundtrack of the Cranberries Dreams. Brilliant. And it just it just sent me right. It takes you straight to Dairy Girls, first mm -hmm. of all. Yeah. But it also just takes you right back to the 90s. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The series is set in 1994 at the beginning. Mm -hmm. What were you up to, Karen, in 94? Well, in 93, I just left university, actually. Um, so I remember a lot of it and, you know, um, the music, definitely. But there was a passaway comment a little bit earlier on in one of the series, which go will go over a lot of people's heads unless they were around at that time. And that's the Nicole and Papa um, adverts. So all I was being told that Nicole and Papa aren't real. Um, and there were these adverts for a French car company. I can't remember which one it was, but it was all about Nicole, Papa, Nicole, Papa. Papa. So if you've never heard of that, have a look for some of the old Nicole, Papa um, adverts. And then you can spot when you watch Dairy Girls again, you can spot that, that happening. But 
Um, well, the- this is one of the examples of one of uh, one of the many times where you've been like, <laughs> how have you not seen this thing? Um, and I went back and watched these adverts and just, they're bonkers. They're yeah. really bizarre. <laughs> they were. There's but, a really but strange relationship everybody between would Nicole be saying, and Papa. And Nicole, like, oh. Papa. Nicole, yeah. Papa, all the time. So I think I missed quite a lot, probably. In yes. Show. <laughs> well, it was like the rock the boat dancing. I've been to parties where people get down on the sticky, icky, horrible floor to do that weird dance routine. Yeah, I don't know what I, that's about. I don't think I've been part of that at all. No. Um, and of course, the classic this and that video, uh, which was very, <laughs> very raunchy for the time. The, the take that and pray. Yeah. Yes. So again, so for, <laughs> for context, I was born in 93. So um, what was I up to in 94? <sighs> Probably learning to talk. Mm. Um, but I do remember a lot of the soundtrack because I still absorbed a lot of it through the rest of the 90s mm, as yeah. I was growing up. So pretty much all of the songs still stir something in me that's nostalgic. Mm. And I still remember being very like obsessed with, particularly in kind of the late 90s, like double denim. Oh and yes, like, you know yeah. the Spice Girls mm. and and all all of this stuff. So it does still feel a bit nostalgic to me. But yeah, I've missed loads of these other bits. And one of those bits, again, <laughs> when you sat me down in front of YouTube, was yeah this this really bizarre take that video that yeah. did appear in the show, and I I had no idea quite to the extent at which when take that were early doors mm. they were being paraded around and very much heavily marketed as sex symbols yeah. and their video oh it's <laughs> horrible cringeworthy isn't it it, it really was so is. raunchy <laughs> and i hated it i hated every mm. moment of it yeah well i imagine they do watching it back can you imagine i don't know oh, oh dear me imagine having footage of yourself on the internet like yeah. dancing under a waterfall or whatever it was they were doing <laughs> pass no. Don't want that. Don't want that. Um, but I have to say, I'm relieved to say that uh, Robbie didn't talk to me through the telly like he did to um, to Michelle. So that was did a relief. Not? No, no, because <laughs> that would have been a bit unfortunate, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would have been something very different. We, mm. we might be doing a different show. Yes, this is true. <laughs> so uh, obviously, this and that weren't the only pop group that featured heavily in the show, though, were they? I mean, in no. season three, we saw a glimpse of the Spice Girls. Uh, were they all dressed up as the Spice Girls and dancing on the stage and doing a brilliant performance? It was excellent. I Do you know what? Um, being a teacher at that point in time, of course, you had the end of year shows or the summer shows or whatever. Mm. I have been Baby Spice in a Spice <gasps> Girls teacher lineup. Yep. Pigtails I thought I knew all. everything about you. No. There and you this go. is one of the best new revelations I've ever heard. <laughs> really? Yes. Baby yeah. Spice. Five of us standing up there doing the old routine. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm definitely going to have to quiz you on all of your uh, your extensive career of end of season shows. Yes. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. That's amazing. Yeah, but, um, so fun. Uh, but they, they obviously, you know, they dressed up and they did, who, who do you think you are? Do you yes. think you are? Yes. Well, uh, if we've left that in, I, I apologise, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> We're 11 minutes in and we haven't said a single thing about science, so it might be cut. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, we're a science podcast. Mm. We're not just a reminiscence podcast, although this one, this one perhaps uh, feels as though we are. Um, but would you believe it? There mm. are actually some hits when you search Google Scholar for the Spice Girls. Marvellous. So they're going to be our first entry into some science here. So mm. we've got, there were quite a lot of academic papers that mentioned them because they were so iconic as a British mm. pop group. But also they very much, you know, they promoted girl power. Yeah. And they were very much at the, the kind of forefront of shaping what feminism and the modern woman and the varieties of modern women mm. looked like in the 90s, which is why... 
I think they became so much of a fixation for kids my age, mm. kids and 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 the Dairy Girls. You know, you can see yeah. you can see why they and not just because there's five of them, so it's convenient for them to dress up <laughs> as one each in the end of the show. So you know, they each basically represented a different type of femininity or or definition of femininity Mm -hmm. so you had you know the sporty one the posh one the kind of wild one the sexy one and then the naive one Mm. so that was you you were naive baby spice i was a naive baby spice yeah yeah (laughs) but 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 what it did is instead of just presenting young women with the typical barbie doll that they were normally Mm. presented with it offered them different versions of what they could grow into or evolve and it validated all of these different types of femininity as well, which was the main thing. So although people were being and experiencing each of these threads, uh, it was amazing, I think, to have arguably some of the most famous people in the world championing each of those threads, like, really hard. Yeah, but also, you know, sticking up for each other. It was a huge thing where, you know, they'd be in situations where they'd be experiencing misogyny and they would be standing up for each other and not taking any of it, not taking any nonsense. And that was quite powerful and different as well mm. um, because you saw it happening and, you know, that's quite empowering for young women, I think, to see to be able to see that and as a role model, definitely. Mm. Absolutely. I, I've, I think I'm really lucky to have grown up with that being the sort of thing that I was experiencing when I was very young. Yeah, because if you go back, because I'm, I'm quite a bit older, um, I was born in 72 and actually back in the early 70s, women couldn't even take out a credit card without having a man sign the form. My blood is boiling. Yes. So it's, you know, lots changed in the last, <laughs> lots changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that academics have written about when they're talking about, you know, the rise of the Spice Girls and the mm. role that the Spice Girls have had in our lives, particularly kind of psychology and relationship building as well, is that back in the day, you used to learn a lot about a person by asking them, who's your favourite Beatle? Because then you would assign all of the characteristics Mm. that that person represented. And then that was very much the same thing with the Spice Girls. You Mm. could ask someone, oh, who's your favourite Spice Girl? And then assume a few things about their personality and get to know them a little bit better by seeing who they like most aligned themselves with. Either they saw themselves in or they admired and the kind of personality traits they would want to. So they were actually quite an interesting tool for relationship building. Oh, how interesting. Mm. The psychology of the Spice Girls, who knew? Yeah. (laughs) So um, we've obviously been talking about Take That and the Spice Girls quite a lot, and we've been very, very nostalgic about uh, the 90s. So is there any scientific basis to nostalgia? Because there's been a lot of nostalgic programs on telly, like Friends and Sex and the City. They've all been either resurfaced or rebooted. So what's the science of nostalgia? Yeah, so researchers have shown, well, I think something that we all know is that nostalgia is a very sentimental Mm. emotion, but it's a positive feeling. It's not a negative one, and it promotes a certain level of psychological comfort. Mm. So by making us feel nostalgic, these shows offer us a certain level of comfort, which you can just tune into in your home at any time, which is, you know, (laughs) a good thing. So it varies, as like you said, whether we're, we're watching an old show uh, that we remember watching previously or mm. takes us back to an era that we remember or it's a new show like Derry Girls which is filmed now but is very much set in an old era with all of the nostalgic kind of the memories uh, being being filtered through that mm. and it's very useful for watching this kind of show it can be very useful when you're feeling low or feeling a bit dark so these nostalgic comedies because obviously Derry Girls is a sitcom um, they're, they're great for making us feel a lot better and to your point as to why they're resurfacing a lot now, mm. 
I think we can look no further than the last couple of years. <laughs> we were all locked in our homes. The pandemic was a was a massive weight on pretty much everybody's mental mental well being. Yeah. So you can see why a lot of us lent into nostalgic comedy mm. as a way of feeling a little bit better. It's basically you know it's like a a visual uh, warm soft blanket. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you go into series three, for example. They took the nostalgia that step further and there's been a big call, actually. Can we do a series, please, about the parents in the yeah. in the 80s? That would be amazing. They did a spin-off. Almost, yeah. It wasn't even a spin-off. They did no. an episode set further mm. back for the parents when the parents were young. So I was going to ask you, actually, <laughs> we, we've touched on the fact we maybe grew up in slightly different <laughs> times. Did this episode tick more memory boxes for you? Was that more like... That was more like my up. teenage years because I was teenager during the 80s. So that, yeah, that was more for me. Um, in the 90s, obviously, you know, I was a young young teacher and um, a university and that kind of thing. But my experience closer to the Dairy Girls was kind of the late 80s. So, mm. yeah, so that that did, uh, <laughs> that was quite a few memories from that from that point of view. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, that, so one of the other things is um, comedies are really, really good for rewatching material. Because what a good comedy does is it works on multiple levels and you can quite often, the second time you see a show through, you'll spot something that you didn't see the first time and, and it, that will make that make you laugh at a different spot potentially. Um, and we know that laughter lowers the stress levels and it releases lots of positive hormones, including dopamine. Yeah, it's mm. amazing the effect that laughter can have on your on your your physical body mm. it's, it's it's fascinating and you know dopamine being one of the um the hormones that we kind of recognize as one of the happiness and the reward hormones the same mm. sort of thing that you get from uh having sex going for a run or eating a lot of chocolate and when we're looking at sitcoms specifically and we're going to have a quick look here again at the science of comedy mm-hmm. um and these um there are three kind of main theories uh when we're talking about the science of comedy specifically in sitcoms if you're writing sitcoms mm. and they go beyond things like physical comedy and slapstick and stuff like that but we have explored these at more depth in our Brooklyn mm. 99 episode so if you want to know a bit more about those head on back to i think series 3 we did Brooklyn 99 yeah i think so yeah yeah we did series yeah three. series yeah. 3 yeah mm. but we thought that we'd structure this slightly by walking you through some of the scenes from Derry Girls mm. and then basically using the science to explain to you <laughs> why it was funny psychologically. So yes. so this, is, this should be entertaining. Now, do you remember, everybody, about Uncle Colm making uh, what should be a very exciting tale about being robbed in his own home the dullest thing you've ever heard? It was absolutely hilarious because you've got everybody desperate to know what he's saying for once. And he's just droning on and on about the radiator. <laughs> I hated it. It was too, <laughs> it was too, too much painful for you. to watch. But this, this one triggers or relies on the theory of incongruity. Mm. Uh, so this is, you know, you have a set of expectations for a situation and those expectations aren't met. And, something that, and that thing that happens in the wrong way, as mm. it were, is incongruous. And that kind of shock and that twist is what makes it funny. So for this, the incongruity is he's got a, a ridiculously intense story, <laughs> but the delivery is just so rubbish. But apparently the, the comedian who plays that character, that is his stand-up comedy routine. So it'd be very entertaining to see him do that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you don't, I could. You wouldn't be able to cope. <laughs> it, it, it was, yeah, too cringe. Mm. But... um. Orla is a great mm. example of incongruity as well, but in the sense that the entire character of Orla is very incongruous. She's just completely nuts. You know, she does very incongruous things all the time. 
like taking her grandfather to the prom or entering the talent show with the step thingy. Like she's just there to put a twist on situations and kind of take you out of that reality almost and, and shock you into, oh, that's actually hilarious. It's very unexpected. Yeah. And also I found that Liam Neeson in this series, the incongruity <laughs> of Hollywood star, yeah. walking like, oh, in in the first episode in yeah. police uniform. Fantastic. Brilliant. And of course, there's other really good examples like a sister, um, sister Michael um, on the phone saying, I've got judo on Friday and I don't like to miss it. Just the idea of her doing judo is just brilliant. And and of course, uh, the the perfect quote, my nerves are wrecked. I'm living on a knife edge here. Is there any Rice Krispies? Just that kind of like... Classic Aunt Sarah there, wasn't it? Yeah, just brilliant. Yeah. You know, Mm. talking about being shocked and then really needing a snack (laughs) in the same breath. Yeah. So another theory is the concept of repression. Mm. So this is the idea that we find things funny that we don't normally talk about or are a bit taboo in everyday life. So sex, we, farting, poo, all of the <laughs> all, all of, of the above. stuff, basically. <laughs> so we're repressed because we can't talk about them in, in real life. So we release that kind of pent up tension by mm. finding by putting it in humour and we find that very funny. So there's um there's one scene in uh, series one where they're walking through the hallway of the school mm-hmm. and they're talking about fannies, blowjobs, that kind of stuff, oral yeah. sex, and it's just <laughs> oh it's, it's again it's quite cringe, but because we don't talk about those things so much in daily life, it was very funny to watch them doing it so kind of casually. Yeah, and also the classic first episode as well, you know, where they're in detention, um, the wee English fellas weeing into a bucket. Somebody's yes. reading somebody else's diary and the dying nun situation at the front as well. Very taboo, all of it taboo, um, and it's classic repression comedy. And then mm. the final theory is uh, superiority. And this is the idea that you basically have a character or a situation which you look at and you think, gosh, I would never have done things like that. I'm, mm. I'm so much more superior to. And then you can laugh at essentially the kind of the joker of the pack. Yeah. And Orla's character, I think, is very much designed to be the superiority triggering character yeah. because she's kind of just nuts also aunt sarah too yeah definitely yeah and um a classic aunt sarah i am psychic erin i did a course i've got a certificate <laughs> very funny <laughs> very funny yeah i love and we'll, it we'll touch on some psychic stuff later as well yes actually. yeah we're coming back we're coming back mm. around to psychic um now we've talked quite a lot actually about how we find some of this comedy cringeworthy Mm. So particularly some of the very adolescent stuff that the, some of the Derry girls get up to. So what's the science behind cringe? Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting, actually. So this is an extension of kind of the incongruity theory, but also twinned with the feelings of empathy mm-hmm. and how we deal with that. So, you know, the kids, the characters, they behave in ways that aren't necessarily socially expected. And that's the incongruous nature of it. But because we're adults now watching it, you know, we're watching their teenage behaviour we feel empathy for those characters, particularly because we can probably recognise our own actions yeah. in those, or we can remember being in situations like that and not necessarily knowing how to handle them. So we we feel the empathy alongside that kind of awkwardness, and that's what triggers this very cringeworthy feeling. Yeah, so even though you know you might be finding it funny, you're also cringing at the same time because you're feeling sympathy for those characters um, who are exhibiting the behaviour so the Derry girls, but you might also in other situations like the office be feeling sympathy for the people around the main character because you've come across somebody like that yourself before and you're kind of feeling empathy for those characters. Yeah. Mm. 
Now, one of our favourite places to go to get bizarre science research for this show, as long-time listeners will know, is the Ig Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. We've all heard of the Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prizes are an award for silly science, like genuine <laughs> research, but silly yeah. pub science. And, you know, searching for Dairy Girls didn't disappoint, did it? No, so we, we've got some science adjacent, science adjacent for you here. Yes, <laughs> so that's close, a great term. Close, but not, uh, not absolutely perfectly nailed. So one of the episodes in the show revolves around going to see The Usual Suspects, which is a classic film, but they, they never get to see the ending. And that's the whole comedy behind it, is not, not seeing the ending of the show. Mm, so the science of cinemas, you might mm, ask. Yes. <laughs> I <laughs> Definitely lo- adjacent. I love where it always takes us. Yeah. So scientists genuinely have looked at some of the chemicals that we release into the air when we go to the cinema. And what they'll do is they'll sample and they'll test the air that's being taken out of the cinema screening and, you know, screenings in which there are like over 9,000 cinema goers. So there's a lot of lot of air being exhaled over the mm. course of the film. And they found that actually, depending on what they were watching, a different mixture of gases or chemicals were being uh, emitted from the yeah, audience. Yeah, so they've, you know, nine and a half thousand cinema goers worth of breathed out air over time. Mm. So that's quite a lot of air, isn't it? Um, so that what they found was that if you were watching a suspense or a comedy... Um, it caused audiences to change their emissions to different specific chemicals. Mm. So, and the CO2 levels also changed. Um, and this was caused by an increase in pulse and breathing rate just momentarily in response to the film. Um, and that meant that you would know that it was a really dramatic scene because the CO2 levels would increase because everybody's breathing rate was increasing um, because of all the adrenaline being produced. So that's quite amazing. If I ever write or produce a film, Mm. I would really like a chart of how my audience's (laughs) CO2 level uh, expiration rates are throughout my film. That would tell you, wouldn't it? How cool is that? Yeah. Ooh, well, look, depending on whether this, you want to freak them out. If yeah, this is the scene. Trigger. This is the scene where there was yeah. like a car chase. Look at look at the CO two levels going up. <laughs> I, w- I would be so fascinated by that. Mm. So it is thought actually there might be a, a scientific reason as to why we do exhale different chemicals based mm. on our kind of mental and emotional states. So perhaps there is an evolutionary advantage to us in a group because we're group animals. Mm. If we're stressed, releasing more CO two, everybody around us might pick up on that subconsciously. And then also know that perhaps there's, you know, some heightened awareness is needed. Or if you stop releasing so much CO2, maybe the danger's passed and everybody else can step down from danger, which is quite interesting. Mm, Yeah. Talking of, you know, relieving stress, uh, should we talk about Erin and flirting? And (laughs) uh, we need to talk about a particular chapter in the show. The Holy Smirk. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Which leads to one of my all time favourite lines. (laughs) Our Lord doesn't think anyone's a dick, James. (laughs) I very much doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the scene um, where we meet Father Peter for the first time. Mm, he walks right. into the room, all the Dairy Girls, including James, their mm. jaws drop to the floor <laughs> just a little bit. Sister Michael rolling her eyes in the corner, of course. But what we see is um, a very teenage and kind of overpronounced reaction to finding someone fit. Um, and it's a great example of like how men and women flirt very differently. Yeah. Our and- behavior. And we talked about this in a lot more detail in Love Island. So if you're interested, take a look back uh, or listen back at our Love Island episode. But basically, when go back and watch this scene again, uh, but thinking about the science behind the flirting as you do it. If we look at Erin, 
she flirts in a particular way. And if you go back and watch the show, um, you will see her flirting in a very classic female way. And it doesn't matter where you are from the world, um, women will flirt in a very, very similar way. So there's initially a smile. um, The eyebrows might lift and that opens up the eyes and they gaze. And then the eyelids drop. They tilt the head back down and maybe to the side even, and sometimes cover your face and giggle. So that's kind of the classic female flirting Mm. technique. Whereas men tend to lean back in a chair, let's say, put their hands behind their head, have their elbows up high, thrust their chest towards Mm. you, um, and they're basically subconsciously um, announcing their dominance. Now, uh, Father Peter doesn't do that, so that makes it really clear he's not flirting with them, even though they might be flirting with him. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about Father Peter. Mm. He famous for his good looks and luscious hair, (laughs) particularly in this episode, but it makes a triumphant return in series three. He comes back long-haired and (laughs) ponytailed. So I can hear you ask, can we leave it at that? No, Karen, we had to interrogate the science of the ponytail. Of course, this is small screen science. So... Uh, So a more ignoble award-winning research here, a team of scientists in the UK and the US created an equation that could predict the shape of a ponytail. (laughs) Yeah, I can hear you asking why, and we'll get on to this. But basically it combines how stiff the hair is, the effects of gravity on the hair, and the kind of presence of random curl or wave within the hair. Mm. And used together, this can tell you what shape the, the hair will take when you kind of pull it up behind your head and you fasten it together. And it's hoped that, um, <laughs> and it does sound like nonsense, mm-hmm. but actually kind of the healthcare and cosmetic industry might be finding this very useful for helping in their product development, but also it could help us better understand other natural products that are very similar to hair, like our, like wool and fur. Ah. So there is a use. So there, there's always a use potentially to all this random research. Mm. Um, but we can't, I mean, we can't talk about Father Peter without talking about the hot priest trope. I mean, we no. we can kind of mention Fleabag in passing here, but actually lots and lots of programmes have this hot priest idea. So there must be something behind it. So is there any science behind why we find, you know, all these hot priests hot? Is there, Karen? Mm. <laughs> yeah, but this is all about like fancying someone you can't have. Mm. So someone like your boss or like your best friend's partner or something like that, or or authority figure, yeah. um, which is where priests come into it. It's this concept of forbidden love, mm. uh, making it taste a little bit sweeter. You know, Romeo and Juliet, the classic example in literature of um, uh, love not being allowed, but burning all the brighter for it. Yeah. So, so in the show, the girls and the wee English fella come across Father Peter when they claim to have seen the miracle of the weeping statue of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, which we know in <laughs> towards the end of the episode was actually just a dog wee. Yeah. Um, but yeah, a little bit of repression comedy for we there. Yeah, definitely. So this has actually got a name. It's called the forbidden fruit effect. Um, and most of us can relate to lusting after someone who's, you know, forbidden, which um, by its very nature has become all the more alluring. So this person's become alluring because you, you're not allowed to have them. But it can also be an object as well. So a lovely cream cake when you should be on a diet, for instance. So it's this kind of forbidden fruit effect, it's called. Hmm. There's also um, a sense of safety associated with fancying someone that you know you can't start a romantic entanglement with as well Mm. um, because you're not necessarily having to actually put yourself out there. So it's like okay to fancy them because you haven't got the danger of being rejected. Yeah, and actually some people can find it a bit of a challenge and that eroticness of not being told you can't have it um, can Mm. be a real turn on for some people, especially in sexual fantasies. 
There you go. Yeah, but you didn't think we were going to talk about sexual fantasies in series four. <laughs> and we'll just move on quickly, yeah. But there is there is something linked to this as well, which is mm. quite prominent in, in adolescence. And this is uh, drawing from psychology again. This is the reactant theory. Mm. So this is when someone perceives that there's like an encroachment on their freedoms, which then motivates them to act in a certain way. So mm. essentially it's telling you you can't so you want to even more that you probably wouldn't have if you hadn't been told that you can't (laughs) so the classic example with teenagers is smoking drinking and going out with a boy down the road who's a bit of a bad boy that Mm. kind of stuff exactly and and this shows how these forbidden risky behaviors can become romanticized um so explicitly discouraging a relationship might actually make it happen which is Mm. which is potentially not what you want if you've got a teenager so hmm no. Well, talking of risky teenage behaviour, <laughs> great segue. Have you, Karen, ever thought about getting a tattoo? Neither of us have tattoos, do we? No, absolutely not, because I can't stand needles. So there you go. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. it. <laughs> How about you? <laughs> um, honestly, I'm too picky. Um, I don't um, think I would like something for my entire life. Oh, that's so the thing, I isn't can't, it? I yeah. can't commit to the idea of a thing, so no. <laughs> can't commit um, to a tattoo? No. Well, um, in... 2017 this is quite interesting 10% of applicants for the metropolitan police were rejected because they had tattoos really yeah just because they had tattoos that's um, very recent i'm surprised by that yeah so what they did was obviously they changed changed the situation because they realized this was a this was a bit of a strange Bonkers. situation um but now they're considered on a case by case basis so obviously it does depend what your tattoo is showing and what your tattoo is saying. Um, yeah, that's but, true, actually. Yes, because it particularly as a police police officer yeah. upholding the law. Um, but yes, that's quite interesting. 10%, mm. that's quite a large proportion, isn't it? And did you know we've actually been putting tattoos on our skin for over 5,000 years? That's a so long this time. is as a creative art form or mm. a form of body decoration. It goes way back in our cultures all across the world. Yeah. Fascinating. But um, quick question for you. If you were yeah. famous, mm. picture this, and a fan. <laughs> You met a fan who had a, mm. a picture of your face on their body as a tattoo, which is something that apparently famous people deal with all the time. Mm. Flattered? Disturbed? What are we thinking? I think a bit of both, actually, to be fair, because it's, it is quite flattering if somebody feels that they can go through all that pain just to have your face on them. I mean, I, I'd that's be amazing. Terrified. And definitely disturbed you. because it would be on the stalker. I'd find it a little bit on the stalker spectrum. We um, also don't, you know, in this situation, like, is this person approaching me in my local Tesco's or am I at an event? If I assumed event, I was at an event. I assumed. That's one thing. I'd be if like someone in my local something. Tesco's is like, hey, here's your face on my bicep. Yeah. Maybe context is quite important yeah, in this situation. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, but... it's not just you and I that are asking these questions. Mm. YouGov, who seem to run all <laughs> the of the odd polls, polls, they asked the public, what do you reckon? And 47% mm. yeah, agreed. They said they'd be disturbed. 11% were just straight up flattered and 31% were kind of both in equal measure. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Mm. So we thought we'd ask, you know, how do how do tattoos actually work? You know, why do they become permanent? How does that work? Given that our skin, you know, is renewed so often, how do, they, mm. how do we make sure the tattoo stays, stays where it is? Yeah, and it's fascinating science, actually, mm. tattoo science. So to get a tattoo, you need a tattoo needle, which mm. um, often kind of acts a little bit and looks a little bit like a fountain pen. And the tattoo needle itself pierces the skin and it goes through two layers. It goes through the epidermis and the dermis beneath it. 
And then what I found interesting was that it's capillary action which pulls the ink down into the dermis. Mm. It's not actually an injection mechanism so that the the needle isn't pushing the ink mm. into your skin. The act of drawing your the needle through your skin is pulling the ink down into it. Because the skin is actually damaged, the body sends white blood cells to that area and those white blood cells attempt to absorb the ink and get rid of it. But the uh, pigment particles are too big, so they can't actually do that. Ah, mm. and researchers have looked at stress mm. and the immune responses in people who get lots of tattoos um, by collecting saliva from volunteers before and after getting a tattoo. Mm, yeah, so a little bit, of, cool. a, a little bit of something under the tongue just to soak it up. So after tattooing, what happened was the volunteers had higher levels of cortisol. Now, cortisol is a hormone and people make more of it when they're stressed. Surprise, surprise. But people who had tattoos previously had got lower levels of cortisol after the tattooing. So it's almost like over time, you know, your body's getting less stressed each time you have the next tattoo. So you produce yeah. less, you know, you produce less cortisol in those situations, which is quite interesting. Mm, cortisol is mm. quite an interesting um, thing to look at when we're talking about our bodies, aren't we? Because mm. when we are stressed, cortisol also lowers our immune system. Mm-hmm. So then we're going to be even less likely to defend ourselves against pathogens. So things like viruses and like the common cold, if we're stressed, we're less able to just brush that off. So when the researchers took these samples, what they also looked for was immunoglobulin A. And this is found in the di- digestive tract. It's also found in the upper airways. And IgA, which is what it's called for short, which is a lot easier to say, is the first line of defense in your resistance against infection. So what it does is it inhibits uh, bacterial and viral adhesion to the epithelial cells. So it stops them sticking to the epithelial cells and therefore causing um, an infection. But it also neutralizes uh, bacterial toxins. So it's quite important. That's got a lot of things, mm. yeah. And interestingly, this IgA, these levels also dropped after having a tattoo, but especially when it was someone's first tattoo. So then we thought, well, let's say you get a tattoo of your of a celebrity's face and then you decide you don't like that celebrity anymore. Um, what do you do? Or maybe it's your, your old boyfriend's name or something like that. How do they actually get rid of the tattoos? It's interesting. This is quite a fascinating process. So to remove a tattoo, you need to use a laser and mm. the light beam basically zeroes in on a single colour. And in most cases, this colour is black and it breaks up the pigment particles. So remember earlier we said that the pigment particles are too big to be mm. kind of digested, but it breaks them up until they're small enough now for the white blood cells to actually carry them away. Yeah. So there you go. So your body, body does deal with it, but with a little bit of help. Yeah. So we've flirted with a priest. We've got a tattoo. Mm. Fancy a scone now, Karen? <laughs> Drugs are for mugs, folks. Uh, yes, yes it's, the, hash it's the hash scones. I mean, it's just the uh, the concept of a hash scone. Versus yeah, the a incongruity hash again. You're just... supposed to have hash brownies, but there were no brownies, so they went for a hash scone. Absolutely. I think sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, we're talking about cannabis. There are two main chemicals of interest in mm-hmm. cannabis when we're talking about the effects on the body. The first one is tetrahydrocannabinol, mm. which is THC. Yeah. This is the one that gets you high. And there's also cannabidiol, which is CBD, which a lot of people will recognise because it's something that you can legally buy. It doesn't get you high. It's not got that psychoactive component, but it does help you kind of manage anxiety and creates a little bit more of a chilled vibe without all of the other effects of the THC. Mm -hmm. And they're both, interestingly, active ingredients in the prescription drug 
that is used to relieve pain spasms in multiple sclerosis. Mm. So there are, although it is um, obviously a, a banned drug cannabis in its raw Natural smokeable form, form. Yeah. Mm. but actually there are a lot of components of interest in this in this herb. Yeah. So um, cannabis affects you and affects your body in different ways depending on how you ingest it. So if you inhale the smoke, what these compounds do is immediately enter your bloodstream and they very quickly make their way to your brain and to other organs. So the effects um, happen within seconds or within minutes. But if you eat or drink it, like if you have the hash scones, um, the cannabis containing products, these compounds have to pass through your digestive system first before they reach your bloodstream. So that so the onset might be within minutes, but it's more like to be kind of like within the hour kind of thing, or even hours, depending on how much you've eaten. Mm. So we have to talk about season three and the episode called The Haunting. Now, this is the one where um, Mary and Sarah and Joe, they try and contact their dead mother. Yeah. Uh, through... The medium of a medium. <laughs> I like what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> now, a- according to YouGov, again, <laughs> um, a quarter of British people claim that they have experienced a ghost. I like the wording there, experienced a ghost. So I guess that includes things like strange cold and yeah, um, fe- so feelings mean, rather than necessarily seen one. Visually seeing someone's hmm. face, yeah. Yeah, interesting idea. And if you are interested in the science behind the paranormal... Mm. I'm definitely going to direct you back to our episode where we looked at the show Most Haunted. Yes. Um, and we spoke to a brilliant expert from all things paranormal. His name is Chris French from the mm. Anomalistic Psychology Research Unit at Goldsmiths University in London. And we also went on a bit of a field trip, didn't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. The two we of did, us. We? Uh, we popped on down to the UK's most haunted prison, mm. Shepton Mallet in Somerset, yeah. to try and see if we had our own uh, paranormal encounters. So that was a fun one. So there's plenty more paranormal science for you in those episodes. Yeah, but uh, in this episode of The Dairy Girls, um, the girls are off to this adult free house in Donegal while the adults are are visiting that psychic. So there's a whole haunted house feel to it and all that kind of stuff, very entertaining. Mm. Um, So when we looked into this, we looked at a few bits and pieces of research, but one of the interesting ones that we came across was about phones. Now, any of you out there ever thought about someone who then phoned you straight afterwards. Ever experienced that? I don't think I... No, no I, I so. haven't. No. Must be quite spooky though. Yeah, and this is an idea of some slightly woolly research that we found, but we're mm. going to share anyway because we thought it was potentially quite interesting. Um, but I would I would say take this with a pinch of salt. Pinch of salt, yeah. This is the concept of telephone telepathy. <laughs> and a researcher carried out a series of experiments where the participants were given, you know, the names of four of their friends or family members with home with whom they thought, oh, I might have this telepathic connection. Mm. And the volunteers sat by their phones. They knew that one of the four was going to ring. The phone rang. They couldn't see who it was. And they had to guess which one it was that was on the end of the phone. Yeah. Now, if you're guessing it random, obviously that's a 25% chance of getting it right, isn't it? Mm. Um, so those participants got it right 40% of the time or actually over 40% of the time. And that's a significant difference between the two. So what they're doing is um, that centre that uh, Chris French works for, they're looking for volunteers at the moment to see if they can actually replicate those findings with a set of volunteers. So that's quite quite an interesting idea. So if you're looking for volunteering for this kind of thing, you can volunteer right there. Yeah, and now communicating with the dead, or the concept of doing this, was something that took hold in the UK after the arrival of one Mrs Hayden, a very famous American medium. 
Yeah, and in the 1850s, um, there was there was actually a series of vice published for for actually carrying out a seance, which I'm going to read you what you need to do to make sure it's in place. Ah, if you're okay. going to have your own personal seance, right? You ready? Yeah. Um, there must be no less than three people, but no more than 12. I mean, I can't imagine a seance with 12 people. That would just be too many people. Oof, that it? is a lot. Yeah, a lot of energy lot. in a room. Yeah. So best is eight, apparently. Eight people, <laughs> best chance. The room needs to be darkened or semi-light, well-ventilated and not overheated. You don't want anyone fainting. These spirits um, are fussy. Yeah, and, and this is the interesting one. You must have nobody there who's ill-disposed to or to, you know, to the actual process or is a mischievous person. You mustn't have well, any I'm those. written off then. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously you have to link hands, sit in silence. And back in the day, they used to tie the medium to a chair in a cabinet just to make sure there's no fraudulent behaviour going on. Wow. That's a, a, well, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't fancy that. Tie no, up the me medium, either. put them in a cupboard, and then you can guarantee the seance is genuine. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in 2003, a set of participants took part in a fake seance. Mm. Uh, and this was where one was set up and an, an actor was planted in amongst the midst of them. And he was or she was the one that was suggesting that the table was levitating when actually mm. it was remaining very stationary. Yeah. And after the seance, um, a third of the participants who took part in the seance uh, reported that the table had moved. So they genuinely believed the table had moved. And there was a correlation between people who believed in the paranormal and the people who believed that the table had moved. Um, and that's quite interesting, actually. So the, the, the power of suggestion there, that mm. um, because they were in that situation and they genuinely believed that table had moved, even though it hadn't. Fascinating stuff. Mm. Now, we need to end our episode with someone, I think, who capped off both series two and three in their own small way. <laughs> I think it's time to talk Chelsea Clinton. Yes, really, really interesting way of doing it, wasn't it? So she was there, you know, part of both finales. So at the end of series two, the finale centred around uh, Bill Clinton in Derry um, in 1995, where he delivered a speech about hope. And it was a big moment in Derry's history, obviously. Um, and in the show, the girls actually wrote to Chelsea Clinton asking if she'd like to hang out with them when she was in town. But obviously they didn't hear back from her. A bit rude. <laughs> She's a busy lady. Yeah. Um, and now in series three, we find out why mm. they didn't hear back from her. It finished with a special episode that was set in 1998, which was a year mm -hmm. after the rest of the series had been set. And it was centred around the Good Friday Agreement this time and the vote that took part um, at that time. And the girls were now old enough to be part of. But in the very final scene, which was like a post-credit scene, it shows a US mailman in the modern day, in the present era, delivering um, a letter to, che <laughs> to genuine Chelsea Clinton. The real person, yeah. In New York. And we hear her read it out. And it's the letter from the Dairy Girls all those years ago. And I read online that this is something that the show writer Lisa McGee genuinely did. Wow. Age 13, she sent a letter to Chelsea Clinton inviting her to go to the cinema with <laughs> to her. To the cinema. <laughs> but she never replied. So I, I loved it. And I just thought it was a really charming button at the end of the series. And, mm. it, and it kind of adds another layer to the kind of the hope and innocence themes and the good feeling that the show is, I think, really popular for. Yeah. So Chelsea actually went to Stanford University for her bachelor's in history she wrote a thesis on the 1998 Good Friday Agreement and then she did a master's at Oxford and um, is Master of Public Health at Columbia. 
Yes. So she's done quite a few things. She didn't follow mm. her parents into politics. No. Um, but one, one thing I did find was that um, amongst all of her accolades as a... Uh, you know, working with charitable foundations mm. and working as a scientist, we'll get on to. She also now has an IMDb page from her cameo <laughs> in Derry Girls, which is brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. So mm. she's not the she's not the subject of science research. No. Um, so it's a slightly different thing for us to end on. But I just wanted to shine a little spotlight on the fact that she is involved in research and she's actually been co-authoring a couple of papers and articles and even a scholarly book on global public health. Mm. So even last year in 2021, she was part of a health policy paper in The Lancet, wow. which was making recommendations for the rollout and the communications around like COVID-19 mm. vaccines in the States. So what was really interesting was that in 2015, she was part of a paper because a lot of what she does now is like global public health policy. Mm. But she was part of a paper looking at Ebola and making recommendations for how the world should react to another pandemic. So very pre covid mm. um and i just and you know a lot of it was talking about the world health organization promoting early reporting and really heavily encouraging communities and countries to both rapidly and very publicly share information and this yeah. was something that she spoke out again on through the recent pandemic and i just thought that was really interesting mm. there you go a very strong ending there um always nice to have a strong female role model um and someone clearly a good role model for the characters in the show uh, it turns out so yeah. that's it for this episode. It is indeed. The only thing left to do is to share the show quotes that we snuck in. Mm. Do you want to take it this time? Okay, then, because it's normally you, isn't it? Um, so I, I've given you a very small list. I this often is take true. very long this lists. This is true. <laughs> okay. Screeds, screeds you end up reading. Um, so we had this and that. My nerves are a wreck. I'm living on a knife edge here. Is there any Rice Krispies? Um, I'm psychic. I did a course. I've got a certificate. We've got uh, the wee English fella, the holy smirk, thanks be to God. Our Lord doesn't think anyone's a dick. I very much doubt that. And drugs are for mugs, folks. Fantastic. A couple of good mm. ones there. And for more from Small Screen Science, you can head back and listen to our previous three podcast series. And make sure you're subscribed so that you don't miss our upcoming episodes in Series 4. And if you've got one minute to spare, please do leave us a nice little five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We're a small independent podcast and it gets us through to new listeners. Yeah. And while you wait for the next episode, you could also follow us on social media. Just search for Small Screen Science. We'll see you very soon. Bye. Bye.